Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. Unlike any other human group, women and media put women into the imagination of the United States and the world. Those words are from Jean Gaddy Wilson, co-founder of the National Women in Media Collection at the State Historical Society of Missouri. Established in 1987 and celebrating its 35th anniversary in 2022, the National Women in Media Collection documents the roles women have played in media fields as employees and leaders, as well as subjects of news coverage, how those roles have altered over time, and how attitudes of and towards women have changed. The collection includes records of women's organizations and professional and personal papers of women journalists, editors, book authors, newspaper and magazine publishers, media company CEOs, journalism and mass communication educators, press secretaries, and public relations personnel, as well as radio, television, film producers, and personalities. To celebrate this important anniversary and coincide with the opening of the new National Women in Media exhibit in the Winokur Family Corridor Gallery at the Center for Missouri Studies, the Our Missouri podcast dedicates its summer series to the women featured within the collection and exhibit, as well as the journalists, scholars, archivists, and librarians who have pioneered and preserved its materials. The next steps for the National Women in Media Collection are to bring together manuscripts, video, audio, and personal papers centering on the period 1964 to today. The enormous changes for women across the world in that 60-year period prompts archivists, librarians, historians, and scholars to bring many new stories and subjects into the collection from diverse media industries, institutions, and innovators, as well as underrepresented groups of people. Our guest today is Jean Gaddy Wilson. She's a professional consultant who has spoken on five continents and who spent 14 years as a professor of journalism at the University of Missouri. She is a co-author, along with Brian S. Brooks and James L. Pinson, of the journalism textbook Working with Words, a handbook for media writers and editors. She is the founder of New Directions for News, an innovation think tank at the University of Missouri School of Journalism, and her work led to the founding of the Journalism and Women's Symposium and the International Women's Media Foundation. She co-founded the National Women in Media Collection with Gannett publisher Marge Paxson and the Western Historical Manuscript Collection, now affiliated with the State Historical Society of Missouri. Welcome to our Missouri, Jean. I'm glad to be with you. We're going to talk about something that Missouri has a real reason to be proud. And that's because we're going to be talking about journalism. School of Journalism was the first school of journalism in the world. And one of the classmates was a woman. And we're going to be talking today, and thank you for asking me to be here, the National Women in Media Collection, which is stories, interviews, and a real vibrancy about what difference women in media make actually to our democracy. To get us to that point, let's talk a little bit about where your interest in journalism and media first developed. Where did that first come from? <laughs> I'm from a science family. We speak science at our table. I came to the University of Missouri, young, 18, went into the Honors College, got five hours of D in chemistry. And so I didn't like chemistry anyhow. My family was chagrined. And so I went to the next thing that people said was really hard, which was journalism. 
so weird because I didn't even like to write, but I got into the School of Journalism, and my entire life changed. That does not sound like someone with a pointed view. I was born in 1944. Here's what was open to me as a career, or even as a livelihood, or as an interest. You could be a nurse. My mother was a nurse. She really wanted me to be a nurse. My father was an extension agent with the county, uh, with Saline County, University of Missouri Extension, and he wanted me to be a home economist. Oh, that would never fit me. And then there was this kind of new woman's uh, job. You could be a social worker and teacher. Now, my grandmother was a teacher, but of course when she was married, she could no longer be a teacher because women who were teachers had to be above all criticism. And if a woman were married, she might get pregnant. And oh my gosh, you had to hide pregnant women as if it were a recent phenomenon. So going into journalism was not a matter of, well, let's say what it was a matter of. My mother also gave me a little bitty printing press that had a rotary ink and you could change the letters and they were rubber and I made a neighborhood newsletter. And my parents were really surprised and annoyed when I not only interviewed people and wrote the stories, then I wanted to charge them for the little newsletter. Actually it set my whole career <laughs> because I raised a substantial amount of money for questions of journalism today and tomorrow. Now, thinking about journalism, thinking about media, discuss some of these specific journalists, some of these notable women that you are not only studying, but reading, listening to, watching in many ways that are shaping your career. <laughs> well, I'm pre-women in journalism. I graduated from the University of Missouri in 1966. And the day I was walking around in the summer of 1964, my totally whole future changed because that's when the civil rights legislation passed. And there were five levels of people who were enfranchised, meaning fully persons. Women was one. And um, I really didn't understand, and I don't think anybody did, how different that would make the world. Businesses, education, anything didn't open up to women. They were not embraced with open arms. There were so many lawsuits that had to open things up. So the only journalist I ever remember being female was Brenda Starr, a comic strip in the Kansas City Star that came to my house. And how could I a country kid <laughs> hoped to have those twinkly eyes and that long hair and the mystery man and the black orchids and it was a very funny kind of thing. So I, def I would have to say I really look at what's possible and it's not male or female typed. I just knew I didn't want to be a teacher, I didn't want to be a nurse, I didn't be want to be a social worker. And um, my father really tried to discourage me from journalism because he said, 
you can't make any money in that. And my mother had always said, now, you know, you need to get that college education because you're going to need to have it if you need to support your husband and children if your husband becomes ill. I was 11 years old. I was predicted to have my mother's life, and I didn't. And women in my age group didn't have their mother's lives. So we really had no role models. The only role model I really had was the same one Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on a panel. She was sitting, that face where a judge's face, you couldn't tell anything about what she was thinking. So she was asked in a panel one time and she was sitting very calmly and they said, is there someone you could read about, a woman, someone who would give you the idea that you could become who you've become? And she went, well, no, I don't. And the interlocker, interlocker went on to say something else. <laughs> she said, oh, wait a minute, Nancy Drew. And I knew exactly what she meant. The Nancy Drew books of the 30s had women as pilots, lawyers, dentists, all kinds of things. That was the reality of the 30s, and those Nancy Drew books were written at that time. And my mother would take me and my siblings to the Slater Library, which didn't have much money, and it had the old Nancy Drew books, and I memorized them. And I think the fictional Nancy Drew was as much an inspiration for many women as anything, even better than what we have now. Now, when you get to the university, the University of Missouri, and into that journalism school, walk us through not only the classes you're taking, uh, but also these professors that you have and these programs and fields uh, that are being developed. How did that program assess you as a woman and other women as journalists at that point? <laughs> I would have to say this was a period of time when I was in college that if you were female, you were locked in the dorms at 10 o'clock at night. You could only wear slacks, no jeans, if it were 10 degrees or lower. I can't believe that we crazy people would listen to that radio and if it were 11 degrees, we would not wear slacks and we would walk from where the med school is. <laughs> you know, uh, to wherever our classes were. And I don't care if you wear knee socks, it's still seriously cold. So you get what I'm saying. Women lived in little boxes. And women lived in little boxes in more ways of what you can or cannot do, but kind of always to be looked at and judged about whether you were good enough or not. You were always, always, sort of being stalked, but not for anything that you could do, but to prevent you from doing something. We didn't know we were captured in that. That was our, our set of lives. I knew I wasn't doing well in science, the family business. I still had to have a degree. My parents insisted I had to have a degree because I needed to take care of my children if something happened to my husband. That was the constant, constant, constant thing that I was hearing. And my mother and father both came to the University of Missouri and graduated here, so this was the place. My freshman year, and I do say this 
The only reason I'm in journalism is because I got my housing assignment in late my freshman year. And that's absolutely the truth. My friend Karen and I were assigned to temporary dorm three. It was an old army barracks out by the hospital. Double floors alongside the ground, pasty walls, and um, so the girls sometimes had boyfriends, and we had kind of a lounge area, but we got to know our friends and their boyfriends. And so Maury was one of my friends, and Joel was her boyfriend. And Joel worked for the man-eater, and he was hilarious. She was hilarious. And we'd just visit and do things, and so I knew that he was doing something on the man-eater, and I said, as any freshman says, oh, someday I would like to work for the man-eater. <laughs> you know how you throw those lines off. Joel came to me and he said, well, I've got it lined up and I'm, you're going to come and cover the Senate with me tomorrow night. I said, what? He said, yeah, I've worked it out with the editors and you're going to come help write the story and we'll see how you do. So I went to the Senate meeting with him, listened to things I had no idea they were talking about. They had about 13 to 17 uh, students on that student Senate. We leave the meeting, and he says, well, good. It's due tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock at the man-eater office. I said, what? I didn't even know where the man-eater office was. I think it was in Reed Hall. I don't know what time they opened the dorms up in the morning, maybe 6, 7. It was, I had a clunky typewriter, and you know, you can't erase on a typewriter, right? So I went down to the lounge and I'm pounding that out in the middle of the night. So, have you ever had your palms sweat? And I was just, and I had a roommate who was a math person and she was very regimented. We were friends from home. We should never probably have roomed together because a regimented math person and uh, I don't know what I call myself. Haphazard always works for me, so. <laughs> In any event, I'm going to and they, they're coming down even, even though I was in the lounge. You need to keep this quiet. Okay, okay. So I was perspiring all over. I took a shower. I knew sort of where the man-eater office was. I went in and I was just bumbling. I don't know if you've ever had a bumbling stage in your life, but oh, yeah. And I handed it over to them on these little copy sheets of paper and just sure that Joel was going to say, I wasted my whole time on you. And he said, hey, they liked it. I said, oh, good. He says, you now have that beat. And it was the full half of the front page with my byline. I had just gotten five hours of D in chemistry. This was a good save. <laughs> and I've often wondered if Joel ever knew how, I mean, I, I've ended up with worldwide possibilities. I've spoken on five continents. I climbed the tallest mountain on the sixth, and now I'm looking for a gig to go on one of the cruise ships to Antarctica where I get paid.
because you know I think of international travel as a place I get paid to go, not as a travel writer, but as someone who, whose ideas people want to hear. I think what makes me a really good public speaker is that people can identify with my meandering, which comes to a point, kind of deadly. In any event, that's how I actually was more pointed toward journalism, even though my father said to me, you should never go into journalism, you'll never be able to get a job there, the lowest paid, this is terrible. And my mother, who in some flight of fancy one time thought I should be a fashion designer, I couldn't draw <laughs> any of it. So all of that led to a pretty spectacular time in my undergraduate years. I taught News 105, and I mean I taught it. It was two labs my first year in the School of Journalism. I worked with Dr. Taft, Howard Taft, who put together and continued putting together the largest newspaper collection of any of the state historical societies right here. And Dr. Taft was probably the reason I knew to found the National Women and Media Collection. They put me in the Missourian, and the Missourian has been publishing since 1908. And this was 1966. And they said, you can't work on the Missourian on the news side. You have to go into women's news. I had never been in women's news. And there were so many women by this time. But magnificent things happened. The woman's editor was Dorothy Rowe Lewis. She had been the women's editor for the Associated Press for 30 years, 30 years, I think. And you know, you would pick up the phone and it might be Lily Dashay or Coco Chanel. She knew everyone and everyone knew her. She wore beautiful suits. She wrote a column uh, every Saturday. She would get behind that typewriter and she would make seven carbons and put them in the post office by noon and it would be five daily columns. She was extraordinary. But I was held out of the newsroom. I had 60 students that always reported to me and I was assigning them. And so at least once or twice a week, my stories that I had assigned and had shepherded through ended up being yanked out of the women's news section and put in the other part of the newspaper. Walk us through some of those notable assignments, notable jobs that you had, both, you could say, inside of media and journalism, but maybe even outside of it that were influential later on. When Rick went into law school, I needed to find a job. I looked everywhere. And I finally was finding a real journalism job, and it was in Fulton, and the editor there offered me $100 a week which was not great, but not terrible, but it's kind of a hike to get to Fulton all the time. Mm. And it's a lot, little newspaper. So he gave me a week to come back, and I called him and said, I'll take the job, and I wasn't really looking forward to it. And he said, oh, I found somebody who worked for 60 a week. We don't need you. And here I am thinking, how are we going to live? Somebody has to make some money, right? So I became the second girl in the PR office of Christian College, a girls' school. I couldn't believe I was wasting my education. Well, hmm. 
four years later, here's what happened. That's a period of time where we changed all of Christian College and it became Columbia College and it went four year and we, uh, and we had boys in her. And they put me on the administration because they figured out I was not a number two person. So we did a lot of publications and I spoke directly to the students. I hired photographers from the School of Journalism and we equipped all of our counselors that would go to schools with a machine that had, it was called Autoscan, and it had these photos and stories of the students. We were equipping the people who were talking about this little girl's school that didn't have a big reputation, and the reputation it finally did have was on the front page, I think, of the Wall Street Journal. I'm always audience-based. I always have been. Even the neighbors that I was going to charge money to for my little newspaper. I know that what you publish and what you write about is not about you. It's about we, which is better than saying them because them you can kind of flick away. But the reality is if you don't have an audience, it doesn't matter. I had done a lot of stringing for the Kansas City Star. One of my photographers called me. And he said, you know, I've talked to the star about a story about eagles at the Dickerson Park Zoo in Springfield, Missouri, how they're trying to save eagles, and eagles were endangered. And he said, we have it on the run sheet at Star Magazine. This is like the Joel Strauss story again, isn't it? I have you on the run sheet. You're going to do it. Well, my husband was not keen on me doing anything except showing up for dinner. I mean, he thought he was going to live his father's life, too. And so when Rick went for a conference, I went to Springfield without telling him and did the interviews with my photographer, best still, still photographer I've ever known, Roy Inman. And I wrote a terrible story. And my husband was very angry because I had not told him. I mean, I was always open with him except this. I mean, I was just in this squeezed little box. So the editor, Giles Fowler, wore a bow tie, asked me to come to the Star Building. I did. We sat. He said, I can't take your story and you have one more chance. And if it doesn't make it, don't give it to me again. And he had Roy's wonderful photos already. I went home. By this time, we had um, a home of our own that we moved in on plywood. And I had a little closet, and I had my typewriter there. And I didn't go to some meetings that we needed to show up in all kinds of things. And I didn't go to something one afternoon. I said, Rick, can I just stay home and keep trying to write this? And he said, well, sure. I had, you know, 12 feet of taped together stuff. It was really terrible stuff. In my life, you have to write out a lot of really bad junk first. If it's not in front of a camera, I call it something else. Um, and. So 
I wrote it, I wrote it, I wrote it, and I was embarrassed because here is this top guy who helped me win awards, Roy Inman, one of the top photography people they've ever had come through here. And he'd vouch for me, and I'd shown up with drivel. Well, in any event, I took it in, and the grading on the second time was going to be higher than the first time with his editor. And he looked at me, and he looked up and he said, this is very readable. And what I haven't told you about this story is that Roy had started calling me going, what are you doing in that little town? You don't realize the talent you are. Da 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 da. You know, I've had photographers do that in a variety of a variety of photographers, and they're not word people, right? So that really jump-started me because here's this cover story of the Kansas City Star magazine, which was gorgeous at that time, with this beautiful eagle and how they were saving the eagles in this little bitty zoo in Springfield, Missouri. You know, stories are everywhere that shine new light. And it's better if you live in the country because then you see it better, I think. Just like you see the stars better in the country. <laughs> so, I'm talking to you about a career that seems, um, oh, happenstance, maybe it is. At the same time, all these breakthrough times where journalism changed people, journalism reached audiences. And it was not journalism that was like had been before, it was different. So, I mean, when I had that camera bag slung over my shoulder, showing up for the MFA implement fair, I saw water troughs round, all up against poles. And there were maybe six of them, and they went from small to ginormous. I looked at that. It was a hot, hot, sticky, baby shoulder sweaty day in that tent. I had little girls with me, including Julie Jensen, a friend, and I saw one of my high school classmates and I said, Verna, can I borrow your daughter? And I put this little kid right down there in the bottom of that sitting. And she had this look like, it was great. I got down and shot into it. I'd had great photographers. That's how I knew how to take photos. The camera did not belong to me. I borrowed it course. I, it was on the roll that went with the men standing in soybeans with corn in the back and a good story. And I went to the Kansas City Star on the bus. They picked it up and that's that picture with that little girl ran on the front page. Different eyesight, noticing. That's what journalism is when it's really good. A whole different cast of characters but really thinking about audience. Now obviously we've, we've kind of touched on a little bit on the National Women in Media Collection, but take us to that origin story. How does that begin as a collection? To know that story, you have to know that at age 37, I was disgruntled and going, well, what about me? I'd run my husband's political campaigns by that time 
he was a judge, um, had my children. I had been the youth group leader and Sunday school teacher for about, well, actually 15 years. I had run the bicentennial huge thing that we did in Marshall. And I had done a lot of stringing for the Kansas City Star. But when I came back at 37, that had no, I didn't want to do research that sat on a shelf. So if you ask a big question, and my question was, what's, what are women doing in radio, television, magazines, wire services, and newspapers, and what difference does it make? I mean, it was just like from my science family. Okay, here are the chemicals, here's this, and then you go see what happens. So all of those things led me to the day when my proposal for money to the Gannett Foundation came through and I got $8,000 to try to look at this situation. I ended up with a $25,000 grant at another time and then they called me up and said, you're doing so much on your study and we want to place you at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. So when I went to this event, the Gannett Foundation put together, they said, by the way, they wanted me to spend some of my money on going to Texas Christian University to an event on women in media. The reason we were there, it was the only journalism department anywhere in the United States that was headed by a woman, Douglas Ann Newsom. You get that? Her parents wanted a boy. <laughs> so I almost, I'm so from the country, I almost said no because I was jealously guarding the money to use it on my study. That's where I met Marge Paxson. Marge stood at the front. She had on tan, um, tan kind of cowboyish looking suit with turquoise belt buckle and bolo, and she was smoking Marlboros. And she was great. I mean, she was one of the first ten publishers that the Gannett Foundation put in women publishers. That led me to doing 300 interviews all over the country. They had told me at the University of Missouri School of Journalism that my research, because it was on women in media, there, would, there was not anything new in it, that I would have to go somewhere else. It was not high level enough of research, la 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 la, right? Dean Atwater, God bless him, used his own you know, capital and got the provost to give me a half-time research position and half-time, and then he went to the development office and had gave me half-time development. So I was, in that year, the development officer for all of the School of Journalism as a half-time position. The dean did that. I mean, used, that was extraordinary, I think. So as that half-time development person, you know, I'd been hanging around doing all of these different interviews all over the country, and I had known the Gannett people, and I, and I had a number of people calling me and having me come speak. Dean Atwater 
somehow got a message that Marge Paxson's tax guy had said to her she needed to give away some of her money. So she was splitting it, I think 40000 at Rice, where she was in a, for her first two years there, and 40000 to the School of Journalism. And it was a unit trust. Dean Atwater really had to raise money, so he was so interested in having to get money. But this was a unit trust. It was only going to come due. We were only going to get the money at her death. It was invested by the universities, and she would get the interest. Meanwhile, the corpus would come to the institution at her death. I wasn't a good friend of Marge's, but we were at that very small room where the top tier people in the industry and in academic journalism and women, and it was a small conference room. I mean, that was us. That's why I was saying there weren't women really to emulate. Um, so, I knew the need for women's history, for media women's history and their stories and the extraordinary things that they have done to put women into the American imagination. I was a development officer, remember? <laughs> so anyhow, I put a list of things together that I thought Marge could give to. I talked to Marge, I didn't broach this to her. and. By this time I had a computer, you know, and so it would have been easy to take it out. But I took it into the dean knowing that he wanted real money, and this was like, oh, don't bother me with that. And I said, I put a list of all of the programs that Marge could give her money to, and I've added one in here that might interest her, it might not, the National Women in Media Collection, and fluffed it off. He goes, oh, go ahead. That's exactly the way it went. So I went downstairs to my little office, which was the anteroom to the men's bathroom. There was an anteroom, they closed it off, they put that, my office was in there and it flooded, when it flooded, it all came in. It was, my graduate students were going like, oh my God, that's where you are. <laughs> and um, I put it through the printer, three copies, one for me, one for Marge, one for Buss Insminger, who was the number two guy in development. On a Friday afternoon, it was sunny, and because I knew about Western historical manuscripts, which became, you know, in a whole merged with the State Historical Society, and I knew about the newspaper collection. And so I made a phone call to Nancy Lankford, L-A-N-K-F-O-R-D, having never met her, it was four blocks away from the School of Journalism. Arguably, I could have called and made an appointment to see her. But, you know, taking action is much more important than thinking about it. I call her and I say, Hi, this is Jean Gaddy Wilson at the School of Journalism. And Nancy's very measured. She goes, Hello. I was really glad she answered on a Friday afternoon. I said, I'm the development officer who is going to Muskogee, Oklahoma to meet with an alum. Her name is Marge Paxson. And if I get her money, I, I put, I've made up something that I hope she contributes to. And it's the National Women in Media Collection. And if I get the money, can you 
place it inside Western historical manuscripts. Do you know how long the silence was? She was very measured in the first place, but I didn't know. Well, yes, I think we could do that. I said, great, I'll call you. That was the total of, by the way, I knew that song that Billy Joel said, leave a tender moment alone. When somebody says yes, get off the phone. And I don't know if you've made a mistake by not getting away after somebody says yes, get off the phone. So I put those three copies in my briefcase, still never telling Buzz, Buzz Insminger, still never telling the head of our group who wasn't there very long. So we go, we get on a plane, I don't think, I think it was Ozark Airlines, and we go to Muskogee, Buzz and me. And you know, in development land, if somebody calls you up and offers money, you're really pretty sure they might have more. So that's, he was making that assessment. We go to Marge's house, and she was, well, I'm glad you're here, and this is what Rice is doing, and I'm, my tax man says we need to do this, and, and we need a whole segment on, on Marge Paxson, one of my heroes, I mean. And so I said, well, I have brought a list from the dean. Buzz didn't know I was going to do this. I said, I brought a list from the dean of all of the different programs that you might want to look at to see where you would like for your money to go. And she's reading it. Buzz looks at it. She's reading it. Her eyes shot up. She had great eyes. Buzz looked up, and she said, well, I'd like this the National Women and Media Collection. Remember, leave a tender moment alone. I said, great, I'm sure the dean will be pleased. Poor dean. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's occurred to me now that I've been able to do a number of things to move things forward because I've had a place at the table. I would never have had that place at the table if the little guy in Fulton had hired me for a hundred a week. I have lived and I've become a serial, entrepreneurial, creative person. I do want to say this. The National Women and Media Collection is much more important than I ever knew. And we see this especially now. Women undervalue their own stories. There's no tradition of women having stories that anybody cares about. So women are taught, they're not taught, they're trained to accept less. Tribute, money, love, place, regard, respect. They're trained not to expect that because that's the training. And they're trained to expect more violence, disregard, being talked down to, shunted, not seen, not heard, ignored. 
And so there's this area after 1970 that the Bureau of Labor Statistics will tell you it lags. Not as bad as engineering. Engineering, only 25% of the engineers that are employed are females. But it lags significantly. Women in media make less money. They're in fewer positions. It is still, still male and pale and dismissive. And I mean, the Bureau of Labor Statistics talks about it as a laggard. And yet, the stories about, and, and that's why the stories for women and media are so important. It's because the women who are there have been at a table where they have changed things, moved things, just sort of like I've told you. When they're at the table, even if they haven't, they negotiate for more fairness in journalism, more seeing children, more seeing humans. You know, therefore, the full human picture, unlike any other human group, women in media put women into the imagination of the United States and the world. This is extremely important. Oral histories will be even more important than the pieces of paper that we have. Because since women's stories are not taken as seriously, you have to almost pry it out of women what they've done to shift the world to a better place. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.